Thanks, Chad. Uh, so as I thought about this week and preparing the message for this week, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know really what to do. I didn't know uh, something different. Some scriptures uh, Chad shared from Job came to mind. And then I started looking at the passage for our Romans passage, and, and uh, it led me to another passage, and it confirmed in my heart, uh, this is what I needed to be sharing this morning. And when I get to this passage, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share wh- why. I'm going to share that with you guys. I've shared it with Sean and Dina. Uh, but we're going to continue on in our study of Romans this morning. We've had a two-week break, uh, Palm Sunday, Easter. So let me, let me just give a, a quick overview. In Romans chapter 1, after writing how much he longs to preach the gospel to Rome in the Roman church, Paul summarizes the gospel. In verses 16 and 17, he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God, excuse me, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel. The gospel has the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God to those who have faith. Those who believe in the, uh, the, that powerful good news are saved by grace, receiving uh, from God the, the, the righteousness through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And today we need to remember that gospel. It, it's at the heart of the book of Romans. And we're going to, maybe some of us, as I, as I preach through, I mean, we're talking about, oh, it's not up there anyway, God's righteous judgment. That doesn't sound fun. But, but we'll get it. Now, following that, that gospel summary statement, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and going on all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul establishes this fact, this truth, that, that every person who's ever lived or ever will live, Jew or Gentile, needs the gospel. He does this by showing the sinfulness, really the unrighteousness of humanity. Paul begins his argument for humanity's unrighteousness in verse 18. Just following right after the summary of the gospel comes these, this somber truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We need what the gospel provides. We need the power of God to provide us with the righteousness of God, because we, all of us, no exceptions, in ourselves, are ungodly and unrighteous. We need the righteousness of God provided by Jesus Christ that we might escape the promised wrath of God. Paul then goes on from verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 32, to focus on the unrighteousness of the, the, the whole world, really specifically the Gentile world, the Greek world. He shows that the whole world is without excuse, because uh, uh, ex- without excuse before God, that God has revealed Himself to all through His creation. But we, 
uh, humanity suppresses the truth. And this causes our hearts and minds to be corrupted. We disobey God and we make what we talked about uh, again and again uh, in our study of chapter 1, this foolish exchange. Instead of worshiping and serving our, our Creator, deserving of all worship, we exchange Him for images and, and idols of our own making that we worship and serve instead. And therefore, because we reject and we replace God, He gives us up, gives us over to our own sinful pursuits. And humanity falls deeper and deeper into its own sin and suffering and, yes, uh, death. So the unrighteous Gentile world needs the righteousness of God. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Paul moves, he, he shifts into Romans 2. Paul's argument for humanity's unrighteousness shifts from the Gentiles to the Jews in verses 1 through 5. He says that the, the Jews are in the same boat as the Gentiles because they're judging others. Specifically, they're judging those Gentiles out there for their sin while at the same time practicing sin themselves. They prove themselves to be hypocrites. And so Paul, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, writes these words to his Jewish brethren. Because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Like the Gentiles who worship false gods, the Jews, because of their sin and hypocrisy, are subject also to the wrath of God. They will receive the wrath of God on that final day, on that day of wrath, on judgment day, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will on that, on that day judge all people. His judgment will be righteous. It will be right. It will be correct. It will be upright and true. And that brings us to our passage for today. Romans chapter 2. We're going to cover uh, six verses, 6 through 11. In these six verses, Paul describes, at least in part, this judgment day. Uh, uh, this is when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he does this using what is called, it's a literary term, uh, a chiasm. chiasm. This word comes uh, from the name of a Greek letter, chi, that looks like, kind of like an X, our, our, our X. It describes a structure with pairs of verses uh, moving from the outside in, making similar points. What that means in our case is the first and last verse, 6 and 11, make one point. So it's up there. Good job. Uh, the second and second to last verse make a second point, verses 7 and 10. And finally, the, the middle two verses, 8 and 9, make the third point. So we're going to look at each of these three points, all of which point to God's righteous judgment. And the first point is, follow, is found in verses 6 and 11, and it is that God's righteous judgment is impartial. It's impartial. In verse 6, Paul writes, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. Notice Paul says, each one. That uh, phrase, that word could also be translated, everyone. God's righteous judgment will be experienced by everyone. No exceptions. And how will God judge everyone? He will render, and, and He will judge everyone, first of all, in the same way. Let's get that straight. And He will render, that word render means to give, 
uh, to deliver, to pay back. It was used to pay off wages. When you work at a job, at the end of the week or at the end of the month, your employer renders your wages. He pays you for your work. And it's the same here. God will pay wages to everyone. And like receiving wages for our job, for our work, God will render to everyone wages according to His or her works. God will judge every human being in the exact same way. Paul makes that abundantly clear in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. The Greek word for partiality literally means, uh, it's, it, it's like the Hebrews took a word and they made it a, a new word in Greek because Greek didn't really have it, and they, it literally means receiving the face. It has to do with treating someone in the same way based on, uh, not, excuse me, not treating someone based on outward appearance. Paul says God doesn't do this. He will not let a person escape judgment because of some external circumstances. Specifically, in this case, as Paul addresses uh, the Jews, because they're Jewish by birth. They don't get any special favors. God's judgment will not uh, be according to ethnic or religious background. Instead, Paul says that judgment for all is according to works. God shows no partiality or favoritism. He judges both Jews and Gentiles on the same basis. There's a a level playing field. You see, the Jews believe that because they were the chosen uh, covenant people, that they would escape God's judgment. But Paul wants them to understand they'll be judged in the same way as every other person. The same way that every Gentile is judged, according to their works. Now this should cause us to be Oh, what's he talking about? Cause us to listen, though. We should be chomping at the bit to find out what works we must accomplish in order to receive favorable wages from God. And that's what Paul does. That's what he describes in verses 7 through 10. He describes uh, two different groups of people that receive two different judgments from God. On that final day, when God's righteous judgment is revealed, humanity will be divided into two groups, and only two groups. And God will judge these two groups according to their works. So let's look at these two groups. Let's look at their wages, what they will receive, and their works, what they do. Knowing that each and every one of us, on the day of judgment, will be placed by God in one of these two groups. No exceptions. Paul describes the first group in verses 7 and then in verse 10. And we find uh, for them, God's righteous judgment is positive. It's good. Usually when we think of judgment, judgment day, we think it's, it's negative. It's totally bad news. Oh, I don't want to be judged. But judgment can go either way, right? When a judge renders a verdict, he can find you either guilty or not guilty. He can give you freedom, or sentence you to prison. And in the same way, when God righteously judges humanity, for some, the judgment will be positive. Starting back in verse 6 again, just to get the context, Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, not immorality, which is sometimes what I... What I read there, immortality, 
he will give eternal life. God on that final judgment day is going to render. He's going to pay wages based on a person's work. So, so first, let's identify this first group's works. Okay, What do they do? Paul says, by patience. That word uh, means steadfast, endurance, perseverance. Even in difficult times, these people remain steadfast. They remain faithful. They persevere in well-doing. That word well-doing really means doing good. They persevere, they persist in doing good. And in doing good, they seek something. Well, three things. Now, now, now that word seek is important for us to understand. Notice that Paul isn't saying that they perfectly achieve anything. He's saying that they're seeking. That word means looking for, uh, desiring, or even aspiring to. It's something they long for. So what do they seek? What do they desire? Three things. First, glory. Glory. This, now this could mean that they seek God's glory. Uh, glorifying God. We have it up there and that's, that's a great thing to seek. But more likely what Paul is referring to is the glory that is promised throughout Scripture to the person uh, that, that people receive from God. That, like Moses, whose face shone when he saw just the backside of God, saw part of God, we are glorified by being in the presence of God, by seeing and experiencing His glory. So the first thing this group of people seeks is, is, is glory, the glory of God's presence, of being glorified by God, of seeing God, of being with God. Second, they seek honor. Not the honor of the world, They don't want an Oscar or an Emmy, uh, but instead they seek to be honored by God for their patient well-doing. On that final day, these are people who long to hear the Lord say to them, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And finally, they seek immortality. What I think that means, this is a little more difficult, is that they're, they're focused on, they're living for eternity, the, the end goal, the, the, the long view. They seek after things that last. As Jesus put it, they, they do not lay up for, them, for themselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for themselves treasures in heaven where neither raw moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. They live for heaven. They're citizens of heaven. They make choices that impact eternity. They seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So again, Romans 2.7, these are their works. By patience and well-doing, they seek glory and honor and immortality. And what are their wages? Paul says, He will give them eternal life. Life in God's presence for all eternity. And in verse 10, Paul adds that they will receive glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul turns it around. He says, for those who persevere in doing good, who seek glory and honor and immortality, they will receive, along with eternal life, glory and honor and peace. They will be glorified and honored by God in His presence. They will be at peace, uh, rest, tranquility with God for all eternity. So that's the first group. 
That's the positive judgment. That's the group we want to be in. Let me, let me just assure you of that before we go on. We want to receive this eternal life. But there's a second group. And we find for them, God's righteous judgment is not positive, it's negative. Verses 8 and 9, we read, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So what are the works of this group? In contrast to the first group who seek glory and honor, In immortality, they seek the things of God, in short. These people are self-seeking. The first group is God-seeking. The second group is self-seeking. Focused on selfish pursuits. Focused on self. They do not obey the truth. They do not obey God, the provider of all truth. They ignore His Word. And instead, they obey unrighteousness. They don't do the things God commands of them. Instead, they focus on self and follow their own sinful, unrighteous desires. So what are the wages they receive for these works? They receive the wrath and fury of God. Remember that word wrath. We've talked about it a lot in previous weeks. It means anger and vengeance. It's not a good thing. And fury just adds to the fierceness of the wrath. Furthermore, the wrath and fury of God includes tribulation and distress. And Paul makes it clear that these terrible wages will be rendered to them to every human being who does evil, who is self-seeking, who doesn't obey the truth, but obeys unrighteousness. As he did with the positive, Paul says these wages will be received by the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul wants to make sure his people, the Jewish people, know that they're included in this judgment day, in God's righteous judgment, that they will not be exempt. In fact, they'll be first in line. So on that final day, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a Gentile, that's everybody, if you've persisted in doing good, if you've sought glory, honor, and immortality, then you'll be in the first group. You'll receive eternal life. But if you've continued in evil, being self-seeking and disobedient, then you'll be part of the second group. You'll receive the wrath and fury and tribulation and distress from God. So that's Paul's description, six verses, of God's righteous judgment. He judges every human being in the same way. No partiality. He judges according to our works. If our works are good we'll receive eternal life. If our works are evil, we'll receive the wrath of God. Okay? Are we good with that? Okay. Does that sound right? All right. Now, maybe some of you are a little bit confused. Because for one thing, I began uh, this sermon pointing out uh, the gospel, right? Verses 16 and 17, Romans chapter 1. And, and, and saying the whole point of this section we're in is to show that we're all unrighteous. We're all evil. Bummer. That we all are subject to the wrath of God. And it's only through the power of the gospel, through believing in Jesus Christ, that we receive the righteousness of God. Or put simply... Maybe you're thinking, doesn't the Bible teach faith, not works, results in eternal life? 
Maybe you've got John 3.16 is coming up in your mind, ringing in your ears. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2.8.9, you got that one? When Paul, same guy who wrote Romans, wrote Ephesians, and he says this amazing statement, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not... Underlying not a result of work so that no one may boast. Well, what about just later in the same book of Romans? Romans uh, 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. These are just three of the hundreds, uh, probably, of examples that are just clear about it's not works, but faith in Christ alone that results in our righteousness, our salvation, our eternal life. So the question is, is what we have in Romans 2, 6-11, God's righteous judgment based on works, does that contradict what we find in many other places in Scripture, including the book of Romans itself, Paul forgot what he wrote in 2.6, and he wrote something different. He forgot he wrote 1.16 and 17, and then he wrote, you know, that faith, not works, results in eternal life. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say no. No contradiction. There's just the need for a little better understanding. So let's look a little deeper and see how faith and works fit together. Okay? Let's see how receiving righteousness, salvation, eternal life, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, fits together with God's righteous judgment according to works. And the first thing I want us to understand is that, because some people say this, Romans 2.7 is not hypothetical. I know it's a big word. I'll give you time to write it down. Hypothetical. Oh, it's, is it spelled right? All right, good. Spell checker is my friend. In Romans 2.7, Paul writes, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Some have said that, that when Paul says those, he's referring to those who don't exist. The point is, the, there aren't any those. That he's saying that if someone could, if you could, possibly by patience and well-doing, uh, seek for glory and honor and immortality, then God would give you, give that, that someone who doesn't exist eternal life. But in reality, no one does this. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Paul is just giving us a hypothetical, in fact, impossible situation, making it clear that no one receives eternal life because of works. Now that's, well, okay. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I don't think that's what he's saying. And I say that for two reasons. I think there are others, but these two, two big ones in my mind. The first reason has to do with the verse itself. We've talked about it. Let's, let's just clarify it. We need to remember uh, what the works Paul is talking about are. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, I give eternal life to anyone who lives a perfect life. To anyone who constantly, every time, does good in every situation. He says, he gives eternal life to those who persevere, continue in doing good. That, that their life is characterized by continuing to do, do and to grow in doing good. And they seek, they desire glory and honor and 
immortality. Remember, all three of these words are not talking about living a perfect life. They're not talking about even achieving these things. They're talking about this is what you're seeking after. You're seeking after the things of God. These verses don't have some kind of hypothetical, perfect obedience in mind. They're not talking about a way to earn eternal life. The picture is of someone, not a perfect someone, but of someone who is seeking after the things of God. And this isn't hypothetical or impossible. This should describe every single Christian in the world. More on that in a second. But the second reason why we should not think of Romans 2.7 as hypothetical is because there are many other passages that teach the same thing as Romans 2.7. So we're going to have to make a lot of hypothetical passages. There are other places that talk about our works or how we live leading to eternal life. I mean, a lot of people, I think I was doing some things, some, uh, some Googling about something related to this, and uh, it came up with James versus Paul. Like they have this, James is, if you read James, and we'll, we have a verse from James that we'll look at, but James is supposed to be the guy, uh, works earns heaven. That's how the outside people interpret it. But Paul, you're saved by grace. Well, this is Paul here saying something about works. And, and James will say some things about grace too, because they fit together. So there are examples uh, throughout Scripture that teach very similar to what Paul is saying in the verses we're looking at today. Let me just give two examples. Galatians 6, 8, and 9. As I read these two verses, uh, as I read these two verses, uh, watch for how eternal life is received. Paul, same guy, he wrote Galatians, he wrote Romans. For the one who sows to to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's doing stuff, sowing to the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. See some persistence there? Uh, very similar to Romans 2.7. In Romans 2.7, God gives eternal life to those who per- persevere in doing good. Here in, in uh, Galatians 6.9, if you don't grow weary in doing good, you will reap eternal life. Uh, verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit re- reap eternal life. You see, when you sow to the Spirit, I'm going to equate that. Sowing to the Spirit is seeking glory and honor Immortality, sowing and seeking the things of God. When you persevere in doing good, you receive eternal life. So that's one example, another example of Paul. In Galatians, and if you read the whole book of Galatians, it's totally about, it's not about the law, it's about grace. Second example is a little bit longer. Uh, but it, or, or should I see Jesus, makes, makes the point. In Matthew 25, 31-46, Jesus speaking of the, he's speaking of the same final judgment. Paul's talking about uh, this storing up wrath for the day of judgment where God's righteous judgment is revealed. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He speaks of it in a little more story form, a little more parable-ish form. And it's this, that, uh, this passage that confirmed to me that I, I should share this today, and I'll, I'll tell you why. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, 
And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. Prepare for you, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So I'll just stop there for a second. Uh, when, when I was with Sean and Dina at the hospital with Hayden, and uh, this was after he had completely passed, uh, uh, this couple showed up. Sean and Dina hadn't met them before, I don't think. And they were, uh, I won't say their names or anything, but they were the parents of a young man who was in prison. And uh, it turns out that Hayden was the only one, that, only one of his friends that continued to visit him. As I heard other stories about Hayden, it just became clear he was, this is in many ways a description of him. You know, he cared for those who were in need. And so when I read that and had met the, those friends, I said, this is what I want to share today. Just sort of in honor, honoring Hayden, as honoring his sheepness, him being a sheep of the Lord. And not a perfect sheep, as, as, as we know, but a sheep. Then the righteous will answer him, we continue, saying, Lord, when did, you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You do it to, to anyone, the least, you're doing it to Jesus. Then he will say to those on his right, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. Notice that Jesus, like Paul, or better, Paul, like Jesus, divides humanity to groups. Paul calls them those who do good, persevere in doing good, and those who do evil. Jesus calls them sheep and goats. And in Matthew, what we see is God's righteous judgment of the sheep and the goats. The sheep receive positive wages, positive judgment, and the righteous righteous sheep receive their wages, eternal life. But the unrighteous goats receive negative wages, negative judgment. They receive eternal punishment. Now the question is, what was, according to Jesus, the difference between the sheep and the goats? The answer, their works. What they did and did not do. Specifically, in this case, for the people in need. The good sheep and the evil goats are judged righteously according to their works. So in summary, what Paul says, 
specifically in Romans 2.7, is not about living a life of sinless perfection to earn eternal life. And it's consistent with other Scripture. There is, this is, therefore, it's not hypothetical. Instead, and this is the key point, this is, this is where it all comes together, uh, Romans 2.7, really the whole section, but that verse in particular, is confirmational. Confirmational. What I mean by that is Romans 2.7 is not explaining how to earn eternal life through good works. But instead it's confirming what someone looks like who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a picture of someone who's put their faith in Christ. It's not telling us how to earn eternal life by works. It's describing the works of those who've received eternal life. Paul is not saying that works have replaced faith. He's saying that faith and works fit together. He's saying the same things James says. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, the thing we need to get, and we really need to get this, maybe more than anything else in our, uh, what is this, the 21st century, right? 21st century American Western church. We need to get this. This is what we often leave out of the gospel is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, The power of God. We make it so freaking weak, but it's the power of God unto salvation. There is actual, real, God-given power in the gospel. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, when you receive that righteousness of God, then you are actually, really transformed. Your life is renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You become a new creature in Christ. You're a different guy. You're a different girl. The the Gospel of Jesus Christ does not come into your life and leave you alone. Jesus doesn't leave you in your bondage to sin. The gospel comes in in the power of the Spirit. And when it is believed, it produces what Paul calls, we looked at this in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. You can't separate those two. And if you're trying, you've you got a problem. Here's the truth. Here's what Jesus says, what Paul says, what James says, what they all knew. Here's what we need to know. God never promised eternal life on the basis of good works. There's no earning your salvation. Eternal life is given to those who by grace, through faith, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ's death. His substitutionary death on the cross. That finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. But, sometimes we just stop there and we think we're good. That's, all, that's as far as I want to go. But, God always I know you're not supposed to say always, but God always makes good works the confirmation of faith. And therefore, God's righteous judgment according to works is just, is just, it's just that. It's just looking at, oh, I can see. I can see who's received. I can, the world can see. His righteous judgment according to works will result in those who truly have faith in Christ receiving eternal life. God does... God gives eternal life to those who... God does not give... I'm getting a little confused here. 
God gives eternal life to those who persevere in obedience, not because their obedience is perfect, not because they've earned some special favor, not because they've earned eternal life, but because by the power of the Holy Spirit, saving faith always changes our lives. So the true believers persevere in doing good work. So back to the verse 1-7, persevering in doing good works, seeking glory and honor and immortality, is the description of the believer. Since true faith always results in, in changing us, not all at once, changing us into the image of Christ. That, that word sanctification, we begin that journey of sanctification. And we, we grow, and sometimes we fall back a little bit. Sometimes we fall away and come back. But we're, we're on that journey. There, and there will be works that accord with, that match saving faith. So, so while eternal life will be awarded only to believers, it will be awarded according to their works. In the life of a believer, there will be works that God can put on display to confirm to the world that, that this person's faith was real. Now, there's a danger here to be avoided. And it comes in the way we apply this text, uh, this message. If I put the passage on the screen one, one final time. Is it up there? Okay. So you can look at it. I'm not going to read it, but you can see what I'm talking about. And if you look through it, you might think, you might think, I don't want you to think this. You might think, uh, here's my application. I need to try harder. To try harder to have patience. To try to find more good works to do. Uh, To try harder to seek glory and honor and immortality. To try harder to not be so self-seeking. To to try harder to obey the truth. To obey righteousness. Or put simply, you might think your application is to try harder to do less evil and more good so that you will receive eternal life and not that wrath thing. But this is not the right application. The problem is this phrase and our thought that it's, uh, we're still we're going back to trying harder. This implies that you, in yourself, have some ability to do these things. And if you think that, then you've missed the point of this sermon, and you've missed the point of what Paul's saying. You've missed the whole point of the book of Romans. Again, his main point is to show that all people, Jews and Gentiles, need the gospel. So what he's saying is this. Look. You, every one of you, you're going to be judged by God according to your works. God shows no partiality. So whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, or for us, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you'll be judged based on your works. And so when you examine your life, if you examine your works, and it looks like, verses 7 and 10, Seven specifically, sort of ten is the result. Seven's the description. If you're persevering in doing good, and, you know, we haven't described what that means, but you got a sense of it, you know, doing the right thing, obedience to God. Uh, we saw it in, in Matthew, right? Helping the needy. If you're pursuing good, you're seeking glory and honor and immortality. You're seeking the things of God. 
Not perfectly, but consistently. You're on that path that He's put you on. Then your works confirm that you've received the righteousness of God. That you've been transformed and you've been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That you're a new creature in Christ. That you have been and will be granted eternal life. And your application, if that's you, verse 7, is to, is to continue to grow, continue to move down that path, continue to trust in, in God through Jesus Christ, to continue, not in your own power, not trying harder, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Continuing to submit to the Spirit that's in your life. Continuing, you know, as, as you see, as you have a friend in prison, a friend in need, a friend struggling, ah, the Holy Spirit's prompting you to, to visit, to go to them. You, you obey. Again, not perfect obedience, but you're moving down that path of consistently doing good, to continue to seek the things of, of God. That's what it looks like to be a Christian, to live the Christian life. But if you call yourself a Christian and you examine your life, your works, and it looks like verses 8 and 9, you're consistently self-seeking, consistently living in disobedience to God. If there's a pattern of continually, knowingly disobeying God, uh, sort of thumbing your nose at God, oh, I've, I've prayed the prayer, now I can do what I want. If that's what you're doing, then it doesn't matter what you say about your faith. It doesn't matter what you think you believe. You have no confirmation that you've ever trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have no confirmation that you've received the righteousness of God. You have no confirmation that you've been granted eternal life because nothing has happened to your life. And your application is is not, oh please, not try harder. Your application, your only application, is to fall on your knees, uh, literally or figuratively, and confess your sin and plead with God to save your soul. To give you the faith that, that you might truly believe in Christ, trusting in Him alone, giving Him your life, putting your faith in His substitutionary death on the cross as the payment for your sins, allowing, receiving the Holy Spirit, and allowing God to renew and transform your life so that you can begin that journey of faith. And it's a journey. It's a seeking. You begin to uh, persevere in doing good. Not every time, but you begin down that path. And when you don't, you know it. The Spirit convicts you. You repent and you, you go back. You begin to seek after the things of God. Man, I want more of God in my life. I want to sense His glory and His presence. I want, I want Him to honor me. I want to spend eternity with Him. I want to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And, and your works will confirm your faith. That's your application. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. So that on, a fi- on that final day, when God's righteous judgment falls, uh, you'll be, uh, you'll be one, of, one of His sheep. He'll say, uh, yeah, you're, you're a sheep. I see your sheepiness uh, in you. And you'll enter into God's eternal kingdom where you'll find glory, honor, peace in God's eternal presence. And I, I just want to say, you know, I'm not, I don't want anybody to leave here. Oh, well, I came in here, I thought I was saved, and now I'm not, I, I'm not sure. Well, okay, 
That's partly my point. But the point is, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, I, I'm not saying, I don't want you to hear me saying, oh, I, bet, I better be perfect now. That's what it looks like. That's not what it looks like. It looks like I'm seeking. I'm seeking. I'm hearing God's Word, and He's wanting to, and I want to be like that. I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I ha- I'm not filled with it yet. I still got issues and problems and things I'm working with, but I'm hungering, I'm longing for righteousness, and I'm doing things, works, to help me uh, purge out the old and allow the Spirit to fill me more and more every day. So, I'm just you know, if you just, this morning, you were on the way to church and you were yelling at your wife or your kids or, you, you know, you were somewhere you shouldn't be last night doing something you weren't supposed to do last night. I'm not saying, oh, therefore you're not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. Because you're not earning your salvation. If you've trusted in Christ and He's transforming your life, you're a believer, and, and then you need to repent of that thing this morning or last night or whenever and come to Him and say, God, help me to overcome the sin in my life. I want to seek glory and honor and immortality. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You so perfectly work in our lives, that you, Your Gospel is powerful. Your Gospel transforms. Your Gospel renews. Jesus, the Spirit, enter into our lives, Lord. And how could we be, uh, how could we ever be the same after that? It's crazy. I pray for us. Uh, maybe some of some here who are realizing, oh, that that third point, that negative, uh, that verse eight and nine, that that really looks more like my life, Lord. I pray for them that they would have the courage to come to you. Maybe even if they've called themselves a Christian for many years, they'd have the courage to come to you even today and say, Lord. I want you now, today. I want to trust in you, really. I want to give you my life completely. And for those of us who, uh, to varying degrees, are seeking glory and honor and mortality or trying to persevere in doing good, Lord, I, I pray that you would, uh, or not, not give us pride about that, but thank you for, for the work of your Spirit and in our lives, that we have confirmation that you've entered into our lives and you've transformed us. Lord, for all this, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in Christ's name. Amen.